If you are here, if you were here last week, you remember that we, we have just finished our six-week sermon series called Made New, uh, right? And we spent six weeks looking at stories both in the Old and the New Testament about real transformational life change, people's lives being hugely changed and walking into a different relationship and, and moving forward with God in that, in that kind of vein of made new. And so we, we also kind of talked about our New Year's resolutions and how that went and where we were and all that fun stuff. And we found out that Don and Neil actually made a bet with each other and they lost because both of them didn't do it, right? And I was the only one that managed to keep a New Year's resolution until yesterday, right? Doing really bad about that this weekend. But Monday's a new day, right? Monday's a new day. And we're getting ready to start Lent, right? Which is kind of strange. It seems like it, it hits earlier and earlier every year, even though it hits at the same time every year. Ash Wednesday is on Wednesday. Lent is this season of 40 days moving into Easter, and it comes from this Lent, Lenten word, Lenten, which means spring. And the 40 days represent the time that Jesus spent out in the wilderness preparing for his ministry, being tempted and tested. Um, Lent is this time of repentance and this kind of time of reflection. And in the early church, uh, new converts were baptized on Easter. And Lent was really the 40-day preparation to be baptized. Um, and really, this, today we're now focusing on this relationship with God as we move through Lent. And, and it's often punctuated by Christians giving up something, like some sort of uh, pleasure or vice of some sort. Um, or maybe even adding something as we moved into kind of the modern era. It's adding something awesome, something nice, right, for that. So that's kind of where we are. And we have this kind of strange Sunday that's kind of stuck right in the middle of it, which is it's also Scout Sunday. So we're grateful that we have an opportunity to host the Scouts here at our congregation. But we have this standalone Sunday. Um, and Neil said something really powerful. Actually, we watched a movie last week in church, right? And we talked a little bit about that. At our house, we really like Disney movies, and really the two that we've really enjoyed the most are the ones that Madison makes us watch over and over and over again. And one of them is Frozen, right? If I hear Let It Go one more time, I really am going to let the TV go. And Moana, right? So we got, we got those two. Um, that, we've, that we've been talking about. And we really like, at least me as a dad, I really appreciate Disney movies because the Disney princesses now are becoming these, like, my daughter is like, I could be like Moana. I want to be and do these things, and that's really cool. Um, but oftentimes, they have these, like, sort of hidden messages in them, right? And so last week, we were talking about Moana, and it's a spoiler alert. If you don't want to know the end of the movie or because you haven't seen it yet, I suggest that you earmuff um, but if you don't care, we're going to talk about the end of the movie, right? And so we watched the end of that movie, and it's essentially the heart of Tefiti, which is this kind of jewel thing. See, I got you, Nate. I remembered. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. This jewel that, uh, that Maui steals, and it causes Tefiti to turn into Taka, right? This like, horrible kind of exact opposite of this goddess that gives life. And, and so they're, they're moving the heart back towards it. And at the very end, the culminating scene of that movie is Taka comes to Moana, who has the heart of Tefiti, and she's holding it up, and she's walking down the middle of the ocean, and she said, she's singing a song that's essentially, this is not who you are, you know who you are. right? And as I was studying and trying to figure out 
What do we do for a, a Lenten, kind of pre-Lent sermon series? Um, what do we do on this single Sunday? Every morning I got up and I heard that song. And not only that, but Madison, every time we bring her to the, the church here for daycare, daycare, is like, Daddy, I want to listen to Moana, right? So we listened to that album. I've listened to the album like 375 times. It's good because it's got Lin-Manuel Miranda. I mean, it's really good music, right? But you hear it over and over again. So I heard it over and over again. This is not who you are. You know who you are. And I got up every morning with that song stuck in my head, and, and I thought there was no real better way to spend a Sunday as we bridge from made new and kept that idea of we are new creations. Once we die and are resurrected in Christ, when we fully embrace the, the idea of baptism, when we become fully connected members of the church, we are dead to our old lives. And we are raised in a life of Christ. Every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. That's why it's so cool to be God's people, right? It is so cool because every, day, every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. And what better way to bridge this idea of being made new into this thoughtful, repentful, kind of reflective 40 days than to think about that's not who you are. I know who you are. So today our scripture lesson is coming to us from one of Paul's letters to the church at Ephesus. A little bit of background on where Paul is writing about. He's writing to one of the most desirable places to live in the ancient world. It's a coastal town in Asia Minor. So it's on the the sea there. And it's a very wealthy area. It's a very wealthy area. And most of the things that are happening in Ephesus have to do with one of two things. Either the exportation and bringing in importation of goods, so trade, or pagan religion. Those are the two main kind of uh, breadwinning things that go on in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus is very famous for worshiping Diana, which in a Greco-Roman kind of tradition, Diana was this very beautiful goddess that that pagans worshipped. In the Ephesian tradition, she's ugly. Um, she's, she's ugly and she's the goddess of fertility and she's just very base and plain and that's what they're worshiping and the temple there is this grand, grand experience and, and there are silver things and there's a lot of trade that goes back and forth in worshiping this kind of goddess, Diana. And that provides a lot of opportunities for the Ephesian church to sort of stray from the mission of the, the mission and purpose of the gospel. Paul spends a little bit of time teaching, about two years or so, in Ephesus, and then he leaves. Um, you can, we call this a Pauline epistle, but scholars don't really agree on it. It's written in kind of that same style, but it could have been written by some of Paul's disciples. But it is a Pauline epistle. That's kind of what we, it, we generally agree for that to be. And it follows this main theme that God has a plan to reconcile both the Jews and the Gentiles together. And that his final purpose is not just the reconciliation of those people to him, but really this idea of unity and harmony. So when you think about a a message that needs to be heard maybe in in our society right now, it would be a message of unity and harmony, right? Jews and Gentiles coming together, building a longer table, not cutting people off, right? This idea of unity and harmony. Chapters 1 through 3 are really dogma, like this is the theory behind the church, and chapters 4 through 6 follow this like practical application. So we're in chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, uh, and it'll be on the screen here 
beside us. With the Lord's authority I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't let sin And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those that hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other and tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. This whole passage... The whole passage is this idea of, that's not who you are. I know who you are. That's not who you are. I know who you are. Verse 7 resonates with me as I studied and wrote this week, or verse 17 resonates. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. You see, the Gentiles of this time were people who were not Jewish. They hadn't necessarily heard the gospel of Christ. They didn't know the God of the Hebrew scriptures. Because at this point, the Bible as we know it doesn't exist. Right? The church of Ephesus isn't looking at the same scripture that we're looking at. Paul is there teaching with them. And then when he leaves, somebody else is teaching for Paul. It may have been one of his disciples. It may not have been. So there's a little bit of interpretation that goes on. But they're not looking at scripture like we, we are looking at them. So they, they are living a life that is filled with the temptation of the old ways. Filled with the temptation of the old ways. Just like we too live lives filled with the temptation of the old ways. I am just as guilty of getting up on Monday morning and doing life just like I did it the six days prior to Sunday. Just as guilty. So we live these lives of old ways. And and this is this life of what Paul calls darkness. John Wesley mentions in his commentary on this epistle, having their understanding darkened through the ignorance that is in them so that they are totally void of the light of God, neither have they any knowledge of his will. Being alienated from the life of God, utter strangers to the divine, the spiritual life, through the hardness of their hearts, callous and useless. And where there is no sense, there can be no life. Where there is no sense, there can be no life. Callous and senseless. Remember, we talked a little bit about the background of this epistle. The primary exports of the city, city of Ephesus are goods and pagan religion. The big things that happen in the city of, of Ephesus. People who might have converted 
recently or who are still very young in the faith are still susceptible to the darkness that can come from being stuck practicing the old ways. Isn't that the same way that it is for us? Like we can be young in the faith or we can experience a trial in our lives or we can, we can experience a conflict in our lives that deeply shakes us to our core and we have a, a moment where we can take one step towards the light or we can take one step towards the darkness. And oftentimes to take the step towards the darkness is the easier path. There's less in the way. It feels good to take a step towards the darkness. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Where are you right now? Where is your own understanding darkened? Where in your life are you devoid of the light of God? Right? We, we talk about it a lot. We've got skeletons in our closet, stuff we'd rather not know about. We've got families that are in incredibly broken, marriages that are holding on by a thread, parents at their children's throats, children at their parents' throats. We have all of that stuff, and we're dragging it all behind us. We're stumbling around sometimes over our own sins, justifying them because that's really the only way that we've ever lived because it feels good. And Paul says... This, in this passage, Paul says that we are to be a people called to live a life that we are living. Verses 20 and 21, listen. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him. I love that Paul uses the word you. It's capitalized and bolded in my sermon. You. It's almost conversational. What his letter is telling us, it's a conversation back and forth. That's not what you learned. You know better. He's emphatic that when our minds change, when we are reminded of what we know to be true, that is the moment in which real transformational life changes. Our behavior can and must change. By this passage, Paul reminds us that we are not a people called to live the life that we were living. Instead, we are called constantly to be a resurrection people. Remembered whose we are. Not just who we are, but whose we are. You were sealed. There's an asterisk in my Bible that, that will tell you that the translation can be sealed Right? And that goes into the revelations where, where the, the angel breaks the seals of the church. And that's something that was a big deal. When you seal the document, that was a big deal. So you are sealed as a people. We are sealed as a people to God. One of the commentaries I was reading said, Some have translated to the original, some have translated that verse 20 to, to say this, But you are not this, you have learned Christ. What a powerful reminder that we have continually received the gift of the Holy Spirit and that we live a life that, in which we are saved from the darkness simply by turning on the light that's all around us. I don't know about you, um, but we have little children. And those of you that have had little children, you know that sometimes places that are dark become minefields. We're not into Legos yet, which is good because that really hurts. Um, but we're into like little Shopkins that are like daggers. I don't know, like there's a special place in some not nice place for people that created Shopkins. And they're tiny and sharp and they've got edges and you step on them and my daughter refuses to pick them up. So rather than turn on the light next to me, 
right, which is right next to our bed, I get up in the morning and I stumble to the bathroom, stepping on this and kicking that and stepping my, my dog. Our dog, Granger, has this big, long snake. It's the only toy that's ever outlasted more than a day. And it's like, always, every morning, 5 a.m., 5.30 a.m., 6 a.m., happened this morning, stumbling through simply because I'm too stubborn to turn on the light. I'd rather stumble through darkness and curse and say bad words and break my toe and just turn on the light. We're not called to do that. We don't have to stumble through the darkness. Right? We've been saved from that darkness. Paul's letter goes on in verse 25 to tell us, So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. Make no mistake, this passage, when you read it in its context, this passage is Paul addressing a community of faith. But, but, anytime we read a passage that addresses the community of faith, it also addresses us as individual pieces of the community of, mistake, of, of believers. Paul tells the community that, the, that it has no place for following examples of deceit, trickery, or lies. Each and every one of the judgments that Paul has is followed by what we should do. Stop telling lies. Don't steal. Use your hands for good so you can give it away. Everything Paul gives us is a practical application of the theory of reconciliation between the Jews and Gentiles and the creation of the unity of the body of believers. Right? You may not believe this, at least one person in the room will believe this, but I am neither the easiest person to live with or to work for or to work with. It's okay for you to laugh, those of you that know me. Like, I am none of those things, right? None of those things. And the reason I say that is because in our lives, we have to have a Paul, right? We have to have a Paul. And more often than not... The, we have to have a Paul because sometimes we need somebody to grab us by the shoulders and say, that's not who you are. You are not this thing. It's fake. Stop it. And more often than not, that burden falls onto my poor wife's shoulders. And she's really good. I married a strong, intelligent woman who in no way, shape, or form puts up with me at all. She will look at me and say, that's not you. You can look at her. She's back there. No, don't. She'll be really embarrassed. I owe her money now. <laughs> I didn't tell her that was going there. Right? That's not you. That's not you. I know who you are, and you are not acting in accordance with who you are. We all need a Paul. We all need a Paul. This isn't you. You are better than this. Who's that person in your own life? Who's that person in your own life? And as we, as we close, there's some really clever writing. You know, the longer that I'm in ministry and the more classes I go to, to, to keep my license, the more I'm impressed with how the, the Bible unfolds. And the more I believe that the Bible is the God-inspired truth. Right? Because there's no way that in the first century Paul was smart enough to come up with the pun that he's got in the last line of the verse that we looked at. 
And it stands to reason that this is the practical application of everything that we've been talking about the entire time. Looking at verse 32, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Let me read that again. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. The word to be kind, the verb to be kind in Greek is the word karestoi, which is an aural pun on the word Christos, which is Christ. So we can interpret this verse to be instructing us to be Christ to one another, tender-hearted forgiving, just as God through him forgave you. Be Christ to each other, tenderhearted and forgiving, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. I think that there's a powerful message, even in Moana, a powerful Christian message about, even though it has nothing to do with that, I don't think, about who we are as people. In that this, this God, this person that has dominion over the world, has their heart ripped out by something of the world or someone of the world. And it takes a single, solitary, brave soul to stand on the rock and say, that's not who you are. I know who you are. You're better than this. Would you pray with me, please? Gracious God, we, we're thankful that as we have an opportunity to come and feast at your table, that, that you accept us just as we are. And that at your table and, and singularly in the moment when we commune with you and when we're here in your presence, we can drop the pretenses, we can drop the lies, we can drop the stuff that's been weighing us down for ages and simply come into your presence. We ask that you move through us and that you strike within us the next step. Make it become very clear for us what we are called to do to move and live and partner with you. And if that means somebody has to shake us and tell us that's not who you are, we ask that you give that person strength to shake us and do just that. Mold us into the people that you have called us to be. Continue to move through our lives. We ask all of this in your most precious and holy name. And all of God's people say, Amen.